you know, the government has told us that we have to put children in car seats, we have to wear seatbelts, we can't drive when we're drunk. There are lots of ways in which the government has intervened on behalf of public health. And this is really one of the most important ones that we've ever had. Welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Dr. Jen Barna, and today I have a guest that I think you'll find very interesting. I'm so excited to have with me here, Dr. Michelle Fiscus, Shelly Fiscus, a pediatrician who's practiced general pediatrics in Franklin, Tennessee for 17 years prior to going into public health in 2016, and subsequently as medical director of Tennessee's Department of Health's Vaccine Preventable Disease and Immunization Program. Dr. Fiscus was terminated in July 2021 for sharing information about rights of teenagers to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Dr. Fiscus, thank you so much for coming to be on the podcast with me today. And I would love to hear your story and I'd like to hear your perspective. If you don't mind, could you please just tell us a little bit about what happened leading up to this situation in July? Sure. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. My story, I guess, is a little bit of a cautionary tale. As you mentioned, I was working in Tennessee as the state's medical director of the vaccine program, basically, which meant that in normal times, I was over the state's immunization registry or the immunization information system, the vaccines for children program, which is an entitlement program for children who are insured by Tennessee Medicaid or who are uninsured so that they can get vaccines. And then to respond to possible vaccine preventable disease outbreaks across the state and make sure that we were investigating those and quarantining and isolating people as they would need to have done if they had a highly infectious disease. And then once COVID came along, I was pulled into that response and then eventually responsible for rolling out the COVID-19 vaccine across the state of Tennessee. And you know, really where we began to see some issues in Tennessee was actually several months before we actually had COVID-19 vaccines, when we were urging the governor of Tennessee to allow us to start doing some proactive messaging around the importance of COVID-19 vaccines, about how this was what was going to help us end this pandemic around the safety of these vaccines, because you know, we knew people were going to be concerned about Operation Warp Speed and the perceived rapidity of how these vaccines were investigated. And it was really back in the fall of 2020 that we started getting a lot of pushback from the administration as far as not being willing to allow us to message about the COVID-19 vaccines. And so that was concerning, to say the least, and frustrating because you know we wanted to get out ahead of a lot of the anti-vaccine rhetoric and misinformation that was coming out. So we you know continued along trying to roll out the vaccine in Tennessee and then in May, as we were preparing for the FDA emergency use authorization for children ages 12 and older for the Pfizer vaccine, I started to get a lot of messages from medical providers around the state who just weren't sure what to do if a minor should show up without their parent requesting to be vaccinated. And it doesn't happen often, but it does sometimes happen. 
And so I reached out to our office of general counsel at the Department of Health. And I knew that there was something called the mature minor doctrine in Tennessee, which is Tennessee Supreme Court case law from 1987, I think, that allows what are considered mature minors, so 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds, if their medical provider feels that they're mature enough to seek their own medical care, then they're allowed to consent for it without a parent. And that is something that has been in place in the state of Tennessee for 34 years. This is not anything new. So I asked our Office of General Counsel to provide me the language for that in a way that I could share it out with other providers. And so I was given that, I was told that it could be shared. And then I sent it out in a memo to the network of providers that we had that were administering COVID-19 vaccines around the state. And what resulted from that was that memo ending up being sent to some legislators who were sympathetic to an organization called Tennessee Stands in Tennessee, which is an anti-mask, anti-public health, anti-kind of everything COVID organization. And that organization got the ear of a few of the legislators. And the next thing we knew, they were actually calling for the State Department of Health to be dismantled over this mature minor doctrine because they felt that this memo that was sent out was meant to undermine parental authority when what it was was meant to communicate the existing law of the land in Tennessee to providers so that they would know what to do if a 15-year-old showed up asking for a vaccine. And so there are a number of things that you've just mentioned that I have questions about, and maybe our listeners would have questions about them too. So first of all, though, just to clarify, you went through all of the steps to get permission, really, to share this information, which is just the legal precedent in Tennessee. It was not anything new. In fact, it was decades old prior to putting out the information, which was simply factual information about what the rule is in Tennessee. That's right. Yeah. You know, I was corresponding on a regular basis with the providers that were approved to administer COVID-19 vaccine and sending memos to them about changes in storage or changes in guidelines. And so communicating with them wasn't anything new, but you know, with this being legal language and I'm not a lawyer, I wanted to make sure that the information that I was sending was correct. And so, you know, did go to legal counsel and ask them for the language, which I copied and pasted into this memo and was actually told, which I did not know that the language had been on the Tennessee Department of Health's website for actually a very long time. Nobody knew it was there. And so you mentioned also that months prior to that, did I understand you correctly, that you were not to share vaccine information Right. So, you know, we had been asking before even the vaccine was released to start just building confidence in Tennessee amongst Tennesseans about getting these vaccines. And we were not permitted to do that. In fact, the governor's office controlled all of the communications around anything having to do with COVID, whether that was disease or cases or vaccines or any of that. It was all controlled by the governor's office and not the Department of Health. And so, What you have then is communications people who are not necessarily consulting with the physicians and the public health experts in the state 
and putting out messages that weren't always ones that were going to build confidence with the people of Tennessee around these vaccines. And so essentially they were blocking the scientific information that physicians use to give advice. And there was no limit to the misinformation potential that could be disseminated during that time. Right. Even now we see ads going up on Facebook where, you know, a vaccine's being given with an injector gun or it's being given in an incorrect site or the syringe is filled with, you know, something discolored that, you know, is inappropriate. So it's been very difficult to get messaging out that is both scientifically sound and also addresses the concerns that people might have that would give them pause about going and getting vaccinated. I'm sure out of all of the different specialties in medicine, pediatrics is the one that is the most versed in dealing with vaccine misinformation. And you, especially as past president of the Tennessee chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and then currently serving on the board of directors for the American Academy of Pediatrics for District 4, which includes Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, North and South Carolina, I'm sure you are a perfect person to ask, having the experience of dealing with misinformation with vaccines up until the COVID crisis, and now it seems to have just exploded, the level of misinformation has increased so exponentially. Your experience as a pediatrician, how does that inform the way that you are dealing with this current crisis? I think you're right. You know, pediatricians have been doing this for decades now. I mean, really since the Andrew Wakefield paper in The Lancet in 1998, pediatricians have been really at the forefront of battling vaccine misinformation and frank disinformation. And, you know, it's exhausting. I've been very public about the fact that one of the reasons why I left private practice was because my practice was in a very affluent area of Tennessee a very affluent county even in the country with a higher than what anyone would like percentage of people who were opting out of getting routine childhood vaccinations. And, you know, at one point I really kind of had an existential crisis where, you know, someone whose daughter was due for HPV vaccine at age 11 said that they weren't going to get it for them because they had heard it caused infertility. And You know, I remember just pausing for a minute and saying, you know, I have cared for your child since literally the day she was born. I have been there for you when you've had fevers that have scared you, when she's had ear infections, when you've had developmental concerns or school concerns. And, you know, do you really think that I would recommend to you so strongly something that would have some significant chance of causing harm to your child. And, you know, and where does that really put our relationship after more than a decade, if this is really what you think I would do? And it, you know, it's one of the things that drove me out of practice was just this constant head beating around vaccine misinformation. And, you know, just in the five years since I left practice, it has exploded especially with COVID. And COVID has just added fuel to this fire of vaccine hesitancy, downright vaccine refusal. And what the anti-vaccine movement has done is they have landed on, well, we shouldn't get vaccinated because it should be our choice whether or not. And so this whole idea of medical freedom 
is now what's resonating with people, especially in states that lean more red, that, you know, I'm not going to let the government tell me what to do. I'm not going to get a vaccine for my child because it's what the government wants me to do. And I should be able to make these decisions for myself, which, you know, the government has told us that we have to put children in car seats. We have to wear seatbelts. We can't drive when we're drunk. You know, there are lots of ways in which the government has intervened on behalf of public health. And this is really one of the most important ones that we've ever had. So as exhausting as all of this is, I really feel for the physicians who primarily work with adults because, you know, this is really quite new. You know, a lot of those practices, at least in my experience in going in to see my internist, a nurse might ask me, would you like a flu shot? And you answer yes or no. And then that's often the end of the discussion. And now you have a situation where just asking whether you've had a COVID-19 vaccine could create somewhat of a hostile reaction in a patient could make a visit very unpleasant and really derail the rest of your conversation for that visit. And so many providers are not willing to have the vaccine in their office. So even if you had a conversation and you were somewhat successful in getting an individual to consider getting vaccinated, in a lot of cases, they can't get the vaccine while they're there. And by the time they get to their car and think about it again, and now I have to go to another place and make another appointment, then the motivation's sort of lost. So it's all a very complex, very resource intensive kind of situation. And it wears everybody down, I think. And just in case anyone's listening and wondering about your Andrew Wakefield reference, 1998, the paper in Lancet, that was the paper that was 12 years later retracted that initially associated the MMR vaccine with autism. And to some extent, I think is credited with much of the origin of vaccine misinformation and fear of vaccines that has grown over time in the U.S., it was really the catalyst for you know the modern anti-vaccine movement. There's been anti-vaccine stuff, you know, since smallpox in the late 1700s, but Wakefield's paper was really the catalyst that started this whole modern movement around this, you know, anti-vaccine ideas and you know started with people being concerned about autism and has morphed into so many other issues that are not factual. It's what kind of brought us Jenny McCarthy a few years later, as she was talking about her son that she said had autism from vaccines and, you know, come to find out later, he probably didn't have autism and has created movies like Vaxxed and Vaxxed 2 that have, you know, really shared stories and anecdata from people who really tell very frightening stories of, you know, watching their child regress. And when you listen to those kinds of stories and you don't have the ability to really discern the source of some of the information you're listening to, they can be terrifying. And, you know, it makes sense that people would start to get concerned about something like giving a child a vaccine. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, these are still parents who want to do what's right for their child. They just, unfortunately, are becoming victims of misinformation and not thinking about the risk of not vaccinating their children. And so circling back around to what happened to you after just sending out that information to the pediatricians in the state who were asking questions about how to deal with the situation that may arise if a teenager requests a vaccination. So what happened after that? 
Well, there were a few members of the legislature that were, you know, quite upset by that memo. Um, and then they were also upset that there were some social media messages going out featuring adolescents who had you know, a Band-Aid on their arm because they'd gotten vaccinated. And those messages were just saying, you know, hey, you're eligible now to go get vaccinated. But they took issue with that. And as I mentioned, you know, actually called for the dismantling of the Department of Health, which, you know, in a pandemic, it's just ludicrous that anyone would really suggest such a thing. But the messaging that was on social media also wasn't from the Department of Health. It was coming out of the governor's office once again. So, you know, their anger was very much misplaced in Department of Health. But what happened as a result was this constant pressure from members of the legislature on the Department of Health, on the governor's office. And what resulted was a, a couple of weeks after this, I was called in by my superior who said, you know, it looks like you're probably going to be fired. And I said, what grounds would there be for firing me? And he said, well, none as far as I'm concerned. But what we're told is that the governor's office is pressuring the commissioner of health to get things right with the legislature. And the way to do that, they think, is to fire the person who wrote the memo. So I kind of, you know, sat wondering what to do for about two weeks. It was about two weeks later that they finally did fire me. I was offered a letter to sign rendering my resignation or a letter acknowledging the expiration of my executive service, which is the nice way of saying you're fired. And, you know, seeing that I had done nothing wrong, I'd actually been commended for the work that I'd done for the vaccine program over the past two years. There was no reason for me to resign. And so I accepted the expiration of my service and uh, left on July the 12th, I think, you know, and then figured out what to do next. And so would you have foreseen that coming in terms of just the politics of how politics had begun to intertwine with the application of medicine and growing disbelief in scientific studies? Is that something that surprised you when it happened? Or were you already sort of seeing that that was a possibility? I think most of us that are, you know, higher in the department were walking on eggshells all the time, you know, and just waiting to be fired. I don't think any of us would be surprised if, you know, we were called in at 3:30 in the afternoon and told that we were terminated. What we saw growing though was, you know, really what went from we're not going to message about vaccines to this response to the legislature of the state and the Department of Health to say, we're not going to give vaccines. And so, you know, in response to all the saber rattling from the legislature, the Department of Health, the Commissioner of Health decided, well, we're going to put a pause on all vaccination efforts for children, whether that's routine vaccines. And this was back to school. This was June and July of this year we were already behind some 30,000 doses of MMR vaccine in last year's kindergartners because they had stayed home during the pandemic. And so this overcorrection of the Department of Health in order to appease these legislators who were really buying into a lot of frank misinformation, you know, ivermectin is better than vaccination. That's in my dog's heartworm. Yes, pill. that's mine too. <laughs> 
Yeah, we have legislators who believe that. I'm just curious if you are aware of how Tennessee is faring compared to other states where vaccination rates are higher. Oh, Tennessee is terrible. It is one of the most poorly vaccinated states in the country. It has the highest number of pediatric cases of COVID-19 in the country. There have been a couple of times when it has had the highest case count of COVID-19 per population in the world. You know, these are not the kinds of distinctions that we should be making. And it's very unfortunate because the tactic has been the same through the entire pandemic. Don't talk about it. Don't promote public health measures. Don't promote wearing a mask and being distanced and not gathering. Don't promote getting vaccinated and making sure you get your booster. Do allow lots of conspiracy theories to circulate and talk a lot about alternative things that don't work. And, you know, the result of that is that people are sick, people are dying, people are hospitalized. And, you know, we don't know what the impact of this has on young children who are growing, who may end up getting infected with this virus one or two or five or 10 times before things are over. And, you know, what does that do to a child who's growing over the course of five or 10 years or so? It's really concerning. At the same time, you have a governor who has told parents that by executive order, they can opt out of any mask mandate that they want to. There is no opportunity for virtual learning for students. So they have to attend in person or they've threatened to cut off funding to school districts if they allow children to learn virtually. There are no mandates to vaccinate teachers. And as a matter of fact, one of the first laws that the legislature passed, even before we had vaccines, was to outlaw the mandating of vaccines for any government entity, not just for this COVID vaccine, but any future COVID vaccines ever are against the law to mandate in the state of Tennessee. And I don't think the numbers can be ignored as far as what the impact of these policies have had. Speaking of impact, the long-term implications of these types of policies and just the whiplash, I guess, of public opinion on people who are in the public health roles. I think if I understand correctly, there were 64 people nationwide in the role that you have in the various states and some metropolitan areas as the director of preventable disease and immunization programs. And out of those 64 people, a large percentage, I want to say 25 people have resigned. Is that correct? Or left those positions within a short period of time. Right. I was the 25th of those 64 people in that role to leave their position just over the course of the pandemic, whether they resigned, retired, or were terminated, myself, and there are other examples around the state of people who, you know, cross the line with their administration. You know, you have an immunization program director who is following CDC guidance, following what the FDA recommends, trying to put out those messages and encourage vaccination. And then you have a political body that is, for whatever reason, and you know, much of this now is political ideology, unfortunately, not wanting those messages to be put out. And so it's a very careful line that people in my former position have walked for years, trying to push policy in the right direction without getting in trouble for doing it. 
But, you know, to have 40% of the people in this role leave over the course of the pandemic and, you know, really not hear a word about it is very concerning. You know, in some of these cases, these are people who were in the role for 30 years and the institutional knowledge that's there, the growth of these programs and they leave. And in a lot of cases, I mean, people aren't banging down the doors to come work in public health. They're underpaid, they're undervalued, and it may take six months, 12 months or longer to replace these individuals, plus deal with the very steep learning curve of directing a program like this. And so it, it really puts the people in their state at risk when they have this kind of turnover in a position like this in a pandemic. Absolutely. A cautionary tale, as you said. How has this decision affected you personally in terms of what you're choosing to do next? And has it impacted your career in terms of whether you would want to stay in public health or not? Are you choosing to stay in public health? In a fashion, I love public health. I love health policy. You know, it's something that I've gotten a lot of through my work with the American Academy of Pediatrics, but then, you know, also over the past few years in public health. And I would really like to stay in that work. I like to find ways to move the needle to improve the health and well being of people. And unfortunately, when you're very vocal about speaking out against the governor and <laughs> The leadership of the Department of Health, it's pretty hard to find a paying gig in the state. And really, I mean, we had started talking as a family way back in the spring about, you know, maybe it's time for us to leave Tennessee. I mean, we had been there for 24 years. I'd lived there longer than any place in my entire life. That was my seventh state. And we had talked with our children who were young adults about, you know, it has changed a lot over the last five or six years. It has very much moved from a tight community where people would you know, do things to help one another to one where it's moved to this, you know, individualism and I'm going to make my own decisions and I'm not going to listen to experts. And, you know, I never thought that I would leave a state over politics. But basically, that's what we decided to do. We made a very difficult decision to put our forever home on the market, one that we had built for our retirement eight years ago. We had handicapped toilets on the first floor, and like we weren't going anywhere. We listed the house. We told the kids we were moving. And because of my role with AP on the board, I have to stay within my district for two more years. And so basically the furthest I could get both geographically and ideologically from Tennessee and remain in my district is Northern Virginia. So just actually a month ago today, we moved to Northern Virginia and are getting accustomed to a new place and making new connections. And our oldest child, our daughter decided to move with us. And it's been fun and exciting and stressful and very different. And I'm the primary breadwinner in the household too. And so, you know, finding also a place where I can contribute to public policy and still earn a living is pretty important. So right now I'm doing some public health consulting work and looking for the next right thing. I'm just not sure what that is yet. Well, it sounds like Tennessee's loss and Virginia's win, and I'm sure that you will ultimately come out ahead, but it's a huge personal sacrifice that you've made just for standing up for what we know through our medical education to be what is scientifically proven to work. And those, of course, are vaccines. 
And interestingly, the people that are anti-vaxxers are, you know, still willing to have our medical care when they become sick with something that they could have prevented with a vaccine. Ironically, we had the double whammy in our state too. My husband was on the Williamson County School Board in Tennessee, and that is the school board meeting that became rather infamous back in the summer when people were screaming at someone in their car and saying they knew where they lived and that they'd never be seen in public again, simply for supporting the use of masks in schools. And so between the two of us, we were you know, pretty big targets in the community. And so, you know, he has also resigned his position on the school board. And I will say, oftentimes better things come from periods of adversity. And we are already feeling the benefits of being on the other side of this and being outside of toxic work environments. And, you know, it was a hard decision because you want to stay and fight. And, you know, if all the good people leave, then who's going to do that work? But at some point, you also have to say, you know, we've got to do what's right for our family and for our own mental health and sometimes cut those ties. And uh, as of now, we're glad that we did. Dr. Michelle Fiscus, Dr. Shelley Fiscus, thank you so much for coming and talking so honestly with me. And I really appreciate you sharing your story on Doc Working, the whole physician podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. As physicians, it's our job to deal with complex and challenging situations. And when we're taking care of patients, that's what we do, that's what we're good at. But there are situations that occur that are outside of patient care, like being overscheduled or a colleague who's acting inappropriately. We may feel in the context of a very busy schedule that we don't have time or the resources to go to anyone or to reach out for help in resolving this. But what if you were part of a community of like-minded physicians where you could go confidentially and discuss these issues and look for solutions and hear about experiences of other physicians and how they've solved similar problems, facilitated by a group of experienced coaches who specialize in working with physicians so that you could go back to work, fix these problems with confidence and get on to enjoying your life again. If that sounds appealing to you, our program Doc Working Thrive may be just for you. Please check us out, docworking.com. It's D-O-C-W-O-R-K-I-N-G.com or email me, jen at docworking.com. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. And thank you for listening.